I don't think I introduced myself earlier. My name is Sam. Uh, it's great to be uh, with you this morning. And uh, right now, it's time uh, that we have the privilege to come and hear God speak to us as we open His Word together. This morning, we are reading uh, from Judges uh, chapter 3. Judges is in the Old Testament. So if you've got a Bible there, you want to open up to Judges chapter 3. Uh, this is a bit of a uh, a holiday series that we're doing at the moment in the book of Judges. Uh, and this morning's passage, uh, it's, it's one of my favorite stories from the book of Judges. It's, it's quite hilarious. Um, I'm really looking forward to how Ross will preach this one this morning. But if you have it open there, Judges chapter 3, we're going to read from verse 12 together. It's up on the screen too. Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And because they did this evil, the Lord gave Eglon, king of Moab, power over Israel. Getting the Ammonites and the Amalekites to join him, Eglon came and attacked Israel, and they took possession of the city of Palms. The Israelites were subject to Eglon, king of Moab, for 18 years. Again, the Israelites cried out to the Lord, and he gave them a deliverer, Ehud, a left-handed man, the son of Gerah the Benjamite. The Israelites sent him with tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. Now Ehud had made a double-edged sword, about a cubit long, which he strapped to his right thigh under his clothing. He presented the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab, who was a very fat man. And after Ehud had presented the tribute, he sent on their way those who had carried it. But on reaching the stone images near Gigal, he himself went back to Eglon and said, Your majesty, I have a secret message for you. The king said to his attendants, Leave us. And they, they all left. Ehud then approached him while he was sitting alone in the upper room of his palace and said, I have a message from God for you. And the king rose from his seat. Ehud reached with his left hand, drew the sword from his right thigh and plunged it into the king's belly. Even the handle sank in after the blade and his bowels just discharged. Ehud did not pull the sword out, and the fat closed in over it. Then Ehud went out to the porch. He shut the doors of the upper room behind him and locked them. After he had gone, the servants came and found the doors of the upper room locked. They said, he must be relieving himself in the inner room of the palace. They waited to the point of embarrassment. But when he did not open the doors of the room, they they took a key and unlocked them. And there they saw their Lord fallen on the floor, dead. Good morning, everybody. My name's Ross. If we haven't met, as Sam said, if you're going to laugh at a passage in the Bible, surely this is the passage, right? There's lots of funny stuff going on there, which we're going to dig into in just a moment. Uh, But let's pray. Uh, Before I pray, just... um, where we're going with this we finished our series in acts last week Uh, we're doing a three-week series just picking out three of the early judges in the book of judges in the old testament we're doing that during these school holidays after the school holidays uh, we'll be having a look at the book of matthew and then we're going to save another three judges for another school holidays so we're just dipping into them just for a little break right at the moment how about we pray then dig a bit deeper dear father god thank you that uh, you are a loving god and you know where we are and you invite us to draw near. Lord, no matter where we are, uh, whether we've had a good week, bad week, whether we're wrestling with things or filled with joy, Lord, I pray that you'd speak to us this morning. Tell us what we need to hear. Answer the questions we're asking. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 
can you laugh at a funeral? Because funerals are an interesting mix of emotions, aren't they? I remember in one funeral that I went to, I was in my 20s, my cousin, who was a little bit younger than me, had died. He was shot dead. Uh, so it was a big shock to us. And it was one of the most emotional times for us to say farewell. It was the reality of we're not going to see him again. So that was very hard. But in the same funeral, it was one of the most funniest funerals I've been to because uh, we get to the point in the funeral where they have a thing called the eulogy where they start talking about this person's life and my cousin's life. And my cousin was just a big personality and there was lots to laugh about. He always talked himself up. He always says you know, how he just missed out on everything, just missed out on catching the biggest fish, just missed out on scoring the best try in his rugby that he loved. All that sort of stuff, you can look back and just laugh. And it's a relief. But you get this really funny emotional experience where it's one of the most sad experiences but mixed in with one of the most funniest joyful experiences and they come together, they intersect with this mix of emotions of sadness but joy. And it's really hard for us sometimes because we want to keep it apart. One of my problems at laughing at a funeral is I anticipate what people are going to say. So my tendency is to laugh too early. And that puts you in a very dangerous, vulnerable situation, especially when you're the guy up the front wearing the suit and tie leading the service. It's a worry. But it's getting the timing right. When's the time to be sad and grieve? When's the time to laugh and be joyful? But there's also this time when they come together. So even God's Word, the Bible, has moments like this. There's times to laugh. There's a story in the Old Testament where a man called Balaam, he's fighting with his donkey. He's trying to drag his donkey along and he's not listening. And God allows the donkey to talk. So the donkey talks back at him. It's a funny story. But there's also other times where King David has a son with Bathsheba. And the son is born. And after seven days, the son dies. And that's tragedy very moving, moving, that part of the Bible. A very moving story. But then we get some stories that come together, like the one we had read for us. It's, it's sort of sad, but it's kind of joyful and funny, and how do they mix? But the bigger question is, why is it even in the Bible that God does this, and what's it got to do with me? How should we understand this? Uh, am I allowed to be sad, or should I be happy? But what if I am sad? I'm not in the mood for laughing. How does it come together? And why does God put a story like this, a message for all people at all times, whether you are feeling like things are out of control and you are suffering and you are in grief or when you are feeling good and you are feeling like a good laugh? How does this story work and give us a message of hope, a message about God and a message to keep going? That's where we're going to go, dig a bit deeper this morning. So whether we are... Whether we have got lots of questions for God and struggling with stuff, or whether we know it's good times now, but there might be something coming later, this is a good story to come back to over and over again. Now, before we uh, get into the storyline, we just need to work out how do we read a story like this, because it's Old Testament, uh, it's history, it's recorded, it's what they call the early prophets, so it's uh, Israel have been given the promised land. So they're moving into the promised land and they're working out how to live in the promised land. And on the one hand, it's an account of history, of what happens and what goes on, how God's working in that time. So us, with our 2020 hats on, 
uh, just go, uh, how do we understand this in the 21st century? We want to read this a book like this like a newspaper or a history book. Just tell us what happened. Skips the details. Who was a king? Who did he beat? What was the fight like? And how did it end up? Just give us the facts like a newspaper. Yet we would need to learn to read like an Israelite. Because an Israelite, uh, when they recorded these stories, they, it is accurate, it is truthful, but there's always written for a message for future generations. What's the lesson behind what these events are going on? So we kind of need to read it like an Israelite, the way what emotions are being stirred for them and how are they meant to, to, to learn about God and learn about ourselves. So they're asking different questions. So we're going to try and get on that journey this morning. So we kind of need to take our 21st century hats off. You know, it's a little bit um, first world, western, um, afraid to judge anybody or even to uh, embarrass anybody. Uh, we need to sort of get rid of all that. We're going to go on this journey to really dig deeper what this story is about. As an Israelite. Well, the story starts, chapter 3, verse 12, as it starts off like a bit of a funeral. It starts off quite sad, uh, and we meet the four main characters. Firstly, firstly, we meet Israel. What's going on for Israel? God's people, they've come into the land, but they've done evil. Another translation might be, they've sinned against God, is, a, is another way of saying it. Which means, often we want to know details. We think sin is a thing you do. So what did they do to sin? But it's actually a condition of the heart. They're not following God anymore. They're following their own ways. They've gone into a new country with new nations and new gods and they're going, hey, let's, let's dabble in everything else and leave their own God behind, the God of the Bible. So he's shut out. He's left out. So they've done evil. They've rejected God, the God of the Bible. They're in a bad place. Then we meet God, the second character. God is there. He sees what's going on and God is not some philosophical idea that's just out there that's very cold and distant god is a relational god so he sees what's going on with his children israel and he's like you're pushing me away you're rejecting me and as a as a parent to a child it's like how can how can i teach them how can i restore the relationship how can i discipline them show them a lesson to bring them back to me so God then empowers a neighbouring nation and a neighbouring king to come in to discipline them. That's where we meet the third character, King Eglon. Now, interesting, King Eglon, uh, in the Hebrew, that's how it was originally written, Eglon means bull. So his name is more like bull man, if we want to translate it right. We get a bit of a picture on what he's like. He's king... Is a bull man mean like, what do you think of when you think of bulls? He's fierce, he's not afraid of anything, he's going to charge you. Um, to call yourself bull man might be a bit pretentious as well. But he's fearing of nothing. In fact, get out of his road, because I'm King Eglon, bull man. But he's also, we're told, a Moabite. He's the king of Moab. Now here's the thing, if we're an Israelite nation, we need to know... If you've grown up in kids' church and stuff like that, you probably think Israel's biggest enemy is the Philistines. The Philistines are always coming in to get Israel. The Moabites are even worse. They're always trying to lay the boot into Israel. They're always trying to take advantage, always trying to dominate Israel. So when we hear in a story somebody from Moab, 
What do we do as a group of Israelites living in these times? Boo! We don't like Moab. We don't like the Moabites. They're always after us. When we hear about the king of the Moabites, what do we do? And even bigger, boo! We don't like him. He's not a good guy. And as it turns out, we'll find out why. King, Moab, uh, king, king Eglon, bull man, he gets his mates together and they invade Israel and they take over. It even talks about them taking over the city of Psalms, a city of palms. That's, I haven't got my glasses today if you hadn't noticed, it's bad. Uh, city of palms. It's like, actually, they've taken over way more than that. But this gets a mention because the city of Palms is a place called Jericho. Jericho is like a nice oasis. It's where you go to escape the world, to have peace. It's a symbol of peace. But guess what? The Moabites have taken our city of peace, our place of rest. Therefore, we have no rest. In fact, we're subject. The Israelites are subject to the Moabites. That's a friendly way of saying, we don't have our own ruler anymore. We don't have our own government. We don't make our own decisions. We've got a neighbouring country ruling over us and oppressing us. The neighbouring king can name what taxes he wants to charge us. We've got to give him all our money. If he wants our, uh, more of our crops, because we're a farming community, more of our crops, if he wants to take our animals, even to the point if he needs more servants, who's he going to get his servants from? You guys going to take your kids to serve him, be his servants in his palace? It's like, this, they're oppressed. This is a bad part. This is a part in the funeral where you kind of go, man, I'm glad I'm not them living at that time. It's bad. And it goes on for 18 years, we're told. We're living under King Eglon, the Moabites. This is bad. But the Israelites, they, they get to a point of desperation. They've tried everything. There's no hope, no future, no escape. But then they remember back, it's the Lord, the Lord of the Bible. He's the one who brought us into this land. He's the one that's been faithful to us. Let's cry out to him. So they cry out to him, Lord, we're sorry. Lord, save us. We can't save ourselves. Our life's a mess. Our life's out of control. Save us. They cry out to him. God answers and sends them a deliverer. Or your Bible might say a saviour. It's the same word. A saviour, a deliverer. Somebody to come and save them or a judge to come and save them. This man called Ehud is our fourth character. Now Ehud, what we're told at this time, is a left-handed man. That's a bit quirky in that time because all normal people are right-handed, right? Normal people are right-handed. He's left-handed. That's important for a bit later in the story. But he's also son of Girah, the, the Benjamite. Interesting little detail. But it's there to show us that, uh, particularly if you're in the generations to come, if you're reading this story, this is a true story. This is a true account. Here's the family tree. Go and ask somebody. Ask one of his relatives, because this is how it happened. It's not a fairy tale, this story. It's accurate. So they've got these details in it. So that's Ehud from what we know about him. Now, Ehud, though, at this point in time, he's not Israel's leader. He's not their ruler. He's a bit of nobody, except he's been appointed to take tribute to the king. Tribute is the stuff when the king says, hey, I'm, I'm hungry, I want some more stuff. 
go to the Israelites. And the Israelites gather around, what gift can we bring the king? So they put together some food, some, uh, some bread, some cheese, some wine, whatever they've got. They've got a, even an animal for, for him to feed on. Bring it to the king. So it's his job to bring tribute to the king. And this is where we pick up. Uh, they come into the... Uh, so Ehud and his mates come into the palace. They see King Eglon, bull man. And they say, he's a big man. He's a very fat man, a very big man, sitting on his throne. What gifts he got for me? Anyway, they give the tribute to him. More food. Great. That's probably what he's after. He needs more food. And then, on your way, boys, out. So they start walking home. They go part way out, and then Ehud thinks to himself, hang on, Ehud, what we know about, he's the man with the plan. He's got a strategy. See, Ehud's made himself a double-edged sword. Now, you've got to think about it. What goes into making a sword, a double-edged sword? You've got to know what you're doing. So he's a pretty clever guy. He's made himself a double-edged sword about half a metre long, and he's strapped it to his right thigh. Now, that's interesting, right? Why is that interesting? Because if you're a man, a fighting man, your right hand is for fighting. That's where you hold your sword. That's where you go into action with your right hand. Your left hand is for giving, for giving gifts, symbolic. Right hand fighting, left hand gifts. Now, for Ehud, um, well, if you're a right-hander, you would strap your sword to your left thigh. So when you go into action... Grab your sword, flick it out, and you're ready to go. Ehud, a left-handed man, he's gonna got his knife strapped to his right thigh, ready to flick it out, ready to go. Now, why is why is that important? Well, it's kind of because if you go to somewhere and somebody goes, oh, show us your weapons, you're carrying anything, most people are expecting you to carry it on your left thigh. So you flick open your coat, it's look, nothing. Well, he's hiding it under his right thigh, nobody knows he's carrying the weapon. Man with a plan. So he's got his favourite sword strapped to him and he thinks to himself, I need to go back to King Eglon, bull man. I'm going to take him on. So he turns around, goes back to the palace, makes an announcement, Master, your royalty, your highness, I've got a secret for you. Now who doesn't like a secret, right? If somebody knows something and you don't, stirs you up i want to know the secret and this gets the best of king eglon got a secret for me great send him up in fact all the servants out of my room all the guards out it's got a secret for me so then ehud comes in comes into the room and this is where uh, he sees king eglon bull man sitting on his throne still in the inner room of the palace and he walks into him says I've got a message from God for you. It's a secret. Eglon can't save himself. So he's like, come, come closer. In fact, he gets off his seat and leans in. I want to know this secret. I want to know this message from God. And what does Ehud do? Draws his sword and drives it through the stomach of King Eglon. Bull man. Bull man's guts go spilling everywhere. The man with a plan kills the bull man. Right on the spot. And if you want to know how this happened, if you want to know more detail, guess what? It's written for us. In verse 22, we're told his guts, his intestines get cut. So in, in your intestines, in your stomach, is all that half-eaten, half-digested food? Have you ever smelt like 
Vomit is what it's like. Vomit in your stomach, rotting food. And even more than that, it's these bowels. It's like there's poo that spills out everywhere. I'm not sure if you ever smelt like raw sewage, baby nappies, go into the cry room, check it out. It's bad. Smells horrid. And the look, the look of it of just all that mashed up food and poo just all spilling out everywhere all over the floor. And you can imagine Ehud. Ehud's like, step back, gut spilling out everywhere. He's like, man, my favourite sword, my favourite sword that I made with my own hands, I better take that home with me. Looks at it and goes, I'm not touching that. I'm going to leave that sword there. So he, I'm not... I'm just getting out of here. So he turns and walks out of the room. Now, in his escape, you kind of expect him to jump out the window, down the downpipe and run away. But he doesn't. He's a man with a plan. Walks out the door, locks the door and just walks down the hallway. There's a good chance he even gives gives the guards a wink. See you later, boys. And keeps walking. Because the guards know that he's left. Because after he leaves, the guards go in to check on the king. Sorry. They, the guards come back. They find the door locked. They probably smell the smell. Oh, man. He must be on the loo. That's what they're saying to themselves. We've got to leave him alone. Man, you can imagine the guards standing at the door. Mate, that curry last night has really played up with him. Because he's really... You know that gag, that dry... Because they're not handling it. Now, there's two things you do when you find yourself in that situation, right? And this happens in every household. Don't kid me. Uh, If you've got a dad in the household, I'm a dad. Um, Two things you've got to do. One is you don't disturb someone when they're on the toilet, right? Because it's nature. It's got to take its course. You can't rush somebody, speaking as a dad. Secondly, you don't want to go in there straight afterwards either, do you? Because, like, it stays in that room. You could die going into that room. The smell's bad. So the guards are at the door, patiently waiting. Man, this is bad. And this is going on forever. They're waited to the point of embarrassment. You know, it's been 10 minutes, 20 minutes, half an hour, an hour. It's like, when do we check on him? Because, man, this is... Strong. You can't make this stuff. This is all in the story, right? But they're there waiting to the point of embarrassment, going, doors are locked, we better check on him. Go get the keys, open the door, walk in, and what do they find? King Eglon, bull man. You know, king of the Moabites, boo. But he's the oppressor, he's powerful, not afraid of anyone. Indulgence, I can have whatever I want, when I want. He's the intimidator, the oppressor. But he's lying on the floor of his own room in his own palace, dead with his guts spilled out all over the ground. It's like, why? He's not so scary anymore. In fact, the man everybody was afraid of is a bit of a joke right now. He's a joke. In the meantime, Ehud has got away, he's gathered up the Israelite men and he says, don't worry, the Moabites are ours. The Lord has handed them over to us. Let's go and take them over. They go out, 
killed 10,000 of the Moabites' best soldiers and the Moabites are driven out of the land. And then we're told, the day Moab, that day Moab was made subject to, the, to Israel, role reversal, God's flipped it, and the land had peace for 80 years. They're back to peace, back to not fearing or afraid, back to not being not in control. They're, they're back in safety now where they need to be. Now, what do we do with this story? What is this story about? Moments of sadness, moments of funny humour. I'd like to put up an argument that God's got a good sense of toilet humour myself, and I, I love it to myself. But it's, what is this story about? Why is it in the Bible? Apart from my own amusement, it would seem. Why is it in the Bible? What's it about? And what's it got to do with me now? We're going to ask those two questions. The first one we can approach by saying, who in the story do you associate with? Because a lot of these stories, we're invited, who are you in the story? And it's a good exercise to do. Because when we go through the characters, there's God. Are we God? Are we the ones that are always in control? Because we see in these verses that are kept being pointed out to us, we might have missed it, it was God who saw them do evil. It was God who used Eglon to teach them a lesson. It was God who answered their prayer by sending them a deliverer, saviour. It was God who gave Moab into their hands. God's the only one in this story in control. God's the only one that knows how this is going to work out, even if he does put a sense of humour, a twist in the story. If we're serious, we know we're not God. We're not in control. Things rarely work out the way we want it to work out. God, there's only one God, and that's the God of the Bible. Are we Eglon, Aka, bull man? I'm not afraid of anything. I get what I want when I want it. If we're that sort of character, the lesson is, actually, you will come to an end. You can't push against God and you will lose. And you need to consider that. Could we be Ehud, the saviour, the hero, a.k.a. man with a plan? Now, it would be very easy to go through this story and go, be more like Ehud. Have a plan. Be the hero. Step up. Lead others. You could easily go down that path. But in actual fact, if you want to be more like Ehud... How would you describe his character? He's a liar, he's a deceiver, and he's a murderer. Maybe don't be like Ehud. In fact, for Ehud, he is a leader, a hero of such, but he's a very limited leader. We're actually told in the very next chapter, chapter 4, verse 1, again the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, now that Ehud was dead. It's like it was good while it lasted, but now he's dead and Israel have gone back to their old ways. Ehud made a change that gave them safety, but he never gave them true change. It really changed their hearts, really steered them close to God, to continually walk with God. He couldn't do that. He's not that kind of saviour. But he does point us to a better saviour. See, as we cry out for help, as the world cried out for help, as we're buried in sin... God does send us a better saviour in his very own son, Jesus, who's also called deliverer and saviour. But see, he doesn't die. 
so that his eternal peace. In fact, he did die, but when he died, he was killed on the cross, he died the death we deserve, so he does defeat our enemy of sin and death. Jesus is not some character that come into the world history and then disappeared. He come to defeat our enemy in sin and death. And he does it by going to the cross, but then gets resurrected again to live for eternity as our King and our Saviour. And if we follow him, we can have assurance that following him, we can uh, have salvation. We can be safe for all of eternity. He's the saviour. Ehud is pointing to Jesus. I'm not the one that's going to give you life. Jesus is, he's saying. Jesus, uh, Ehud points us to Jesus. We're not Ehud. Could we be Israel then? In fact, when you look at what Israel does in their actions... We come to see there's this bit of a cycle of habits that they do. Not just in this story, but all through the book of Judges. There's a point where they forget about God. They sin. They reject God. I want to do life my own way. Things go bad for them, so they cry out to God. God, my life's a mess. I need help. Can you save me? So then God sends a saviour in Jesus. Well, in the story, it's Ehud. But he sends them a saviour, which gives them peace, which gives them life, which is good. But guess what happens next? Like what we saw with Ehud. When he died, Israel go back to their old ways. They sin again. They forget about God and they go their own way. And that starts again until life's a mess. I need God. God, help me. God helps them. And it just goes over and over again. In fact, it's kind of like this dog returning to its own vomit sort of thing. Israel, can you see how silly this is? Can you see how foolish? God has saved you. He's answered your prayers. Now you go and reject him again? Like, what are you thinking? Until you take a step back and go, man, that's the story of my life. I cry out to God. God hears my prayers. He sends me Jesus. Jesus says, you're forgiven. Here's life. I have life. I have peace. I celebrate. To a month later, a week later, even a day later, I found myself forgetting about God, live my own way again, and get myself in trouble with sin again. I do the same as Israel. I think if you're honest, you probably do the same as well. That we don't take our sin seriously, but we get caught in this cycle. But we need to draw near to God. We need to learn from Israel. But we also need to keep that walk close to God. We are Israel in the story. We we need to warm to them on that journey. So the second question is, how is this story an encouragement? Why is this story in the Bible? How can we grow through this story? There's a few verses that point us to the work of Jesus. So now we're back in New Testament believers. Even for us, Actually, I might just hold them. Even for us, there's times when we feel very far from God or very out of control, very much in a mess, and we do cry out, where is God? Israel were in that same situation. So this, these events happened 1200 BC, Israel going into the Promised Land. Did you know these stories weren't put together into a book until 550 BC, many years later? Interesting time, they can tell that from some of the comments that are made in that book. Interesting what happens at 550 BC is Israel not only went into the country, they forgot about God, God teaches them a lesson, sends them Babylon, Babylon comes in, takes them off as exiles, takes them as slaves and they've lost everything. They've lost the temple, 
They've lost their worship of God. They've lost their community. They've dragged off into slavery. And they've got nothing. They're living in a foreign country under a foreign ruler. And it's a mess. It's a mess. Somebody comes along and says, Hey, I've got these old stories from what happens uh, in the time of the judges. Come and have a read of this. How is that meant to encourage them? Well, it shows that God is always in control, even when we're not. That God does have the last laugh, and you can literally laugh at his enemies. You might be suffering now, but there's a time that God will turn things around, and there's a time when you can rejoice and laugh. And that's the message Jesus come to give, right? We see this throughout the Bible. In Psalm 2 verse 4, this is talking about God and his enemies. We think our enemies are so big, like bull man. He's big, intimidating. But it says, the one enthroned in heaven laughs. God laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then Jesus comes along. Jesus talking to his disciples, John 16, 22, says to them, now is your time of grief, but I will see you again. And you will rejoice. And no one will take away your joy. He's talking about them grieving when Jesus goes to the cross. But don't worry, Jesus is not going to stay dead. He's going to come alive and you're going to have joy more than you had before. And nobody's going to take away that joy, ever. But that was to the disciples. But then Jesus invites that to everyone. Jesus, uh, in Luke chapter 6, verse 21, Sermon on the Mount, talking to lots of people. He said, blessed are you who weep now, now in this life, in this world, for you will laugh. If you trust in me, there will be a time when you can look back on your life and go, man, at the time I was weeping, I was in the pits, I was mourning because my life was so out of control. But now Jesus returns, takes us to eternity, to have true life in him, that's going to be so joyful. You're going to laugh. You know, how did God do all that? God's so good to us that that's good. So even in a time of hardness, of loss, of struggles, we need to draw back to a story like this. Go, no, this is not how the story ends. God does have the last laugh and he will. And he's going to bring us with him when we trust in Jesus, his son. Remember this story, not just funny, remind us about God. Let me pray. Dear Father God, we just thank you for your love for us. Lord, we confess to you that we're so much like Israel, that we forget about you, we wander our own way, and we wonder why we end up in a mess. But Lord, thank you for your love and your faithfulness that through Jesus, the true Saviour, the eternal Saviour, that we can have true life, true peace. Lord, I thank you that when we trust in him, it doesn't mean that the world's going to be a happy place today. It's still going to be hard. There's still going to be suffering. But Lord, we know you're going to have the last laugh. We know you're going to bring us with you. And we know we're in safe hands with you. So Lord, thank you for that. Help us to trust you. Help us to stay close to you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.